You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Today we're wrapping up our first series on film industry jobs. I say first because it seems like this actually wasn't the disaster I was afraid it might be. Because either I got real popular real quick or this series did far better than I thought I would. Anyway, we're wrapping up today with what is probably the most underappreciated and least understood element of filmmaking, even by this department's own colleagues. Today, we're covering sound, from its origins to its modern usage, and how all of those acquired noises mix together into what you hear on screen. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. That's what they say, but to me, he's an angel of a joy. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Wait a minute, I tell you. You ain't heard nothing. You want to hear toot 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 me? All right. Hold on. Hold on. No, listen. Play toot 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 me. Three chorus, you understand? In the third chorus, I whistle. Now give it to him hard and heavy. Go right ahead. Film and music always ran hand in hand, pretty much from the earliest days of cinema. Once Thomas Edison had developed the kinescope to show his films, he added them to some of his phonograph parlors, allowing people to watch a short film while listening to music. If you want an idea of what this looked like back then, it kind of looks like an individual putting in modern wired earbuds, which are plugged into a podium with a viewfinder. And I shudder to think about how poorly those ear pods were probably cleaned. When film developed from this singular viewing peep show format to theaters, live music was used. Larger cities might have orchestras performing with the films, while a smaller city perhaps only a pianist. As films became longer and more complex, studios would send music for the orchestras to play that went along with the final cut of the film. The first major film to do this was Birth of a Nation. While there was music playing with the films that was composed for the films these patrons were seeing, the music was not strictly synced because live music. The three biggest obstacles back then for achieving synced sound were ultimately thus. Achieving and maintaining sufficient volume, maintaining the long-term integrity of the sound quality, and the most major, of course, actually keeping the sound and picture synced. Several attempts were made to achieve this using different methods before Warner Brothers would bring the first sound film to the masses. We've talked about the road to sound in the Warner Brothers episode, so if you want a longer explanation of how we got sound in pictures, that's going to be your best resource. Long story short of it was that Warner Brothers won the race to sound pictures, but the system they ultimately used, the Vitaphone, which used a record of the film's audio tracks that could sync to a film and played on the Vitaphone, would be replaced by sound on film technology not long after, which has remained the standard for film print screenings ever since. 
Sound on film allowed an easier way to keep the sound and images synchronized as they were filtered through one machine versus the Vitaphone that required two working in tandem. Digital cinema, of course, completely different story. With audiences raving over the talkies, production companies had to figure out how to adjust their noisy cameras to allow for sound recording. Extensive housing, called blimps, was made for the cameras to muffle their sound, which fixed one problem, but created another. While the microphones now couldn't pick up the sounds of the camera, the cameras could now no longer move in the ways they once could. The same thing happened to the actors, whom now had to stay within range of these very undynamic early microphones. As the tech progressed quickly, the introduction of sound actually led to the standardization of several things in film. For one, how quickly a film print should go through a projector. The rate that was agreed upon was 24 frames per second, 23.97 if you're particular. This standardization was made for one simple reason. Anything slower than that made the soundtrack unlistenable. Sound and pictures also changed the lighting equipment. The arc lights of the era were far too loud for the microphones and therefore were replaced with incandescent ones. By the early 1930s, the microphones had improved vastly thanks to Western Electric and RCA, who released directional microphones capable of recording a wider range of sounds than was previously possible. These microphones were electric and provided electric signals that could be used for sound on film recording. This led to the creation of the job audio engineer, who became responsible for capturing the best sound possible. As the microphones improved and the on-screen talent was either given speaking lessons or replaced entirely for a theater radio performer, the quality of, well, everything improved. The sound department became a mainstay of the filmmaking world where their art form has been able to thrive, though widely unsung since. With Warner's Vitaphone, sound was recorded on disc, in this case, a record. While a huge leap forward in the filmmaking medium, it was a huge pain in the ass to get the dialogue or any kind of sound recorded in a situation where it could be edited. The synchronization was unreliable, phonographs with the film's soundtrack on them were expensive and degraded after only about 10 uses. For these reasons, it was no surprise that sound on film became the standard. Sound on film also allowed something we now refer to as multi-tracking, which is when several sounds recorded from different sources, think voices, sound effects, music, could all be layered together onto one frame of film, played simultaneously mixed together, making it sound like it was always supposed to be there. There are two types of synchronized film soundtrack, optical and magnetic. Optical soundtracks are visual renditions of sound wave forms and provide sound through a light beam and optical sensor within the projector. Magnetic soundtracks are essentially the same as used in conventional analog tape recording for those of you born before 1995. At the end of World War II, non-allied countries gained access to Germany's magnetic tape recording method, which had been around, at least in Germany, since the 1930s. Magnetic tape was a vast improvement for recording integrity's sake and quickly became the standard firstly in music and later in film. Currently, thanks to the digital age, sound is recorded and eventually projected digitally, unless you're going to some Tarantino niche film print screening, then it's likely optical. Like the editing process we talked about last week, digital files do not degrade when edited. This method rose to dominance in the early 90s and is currently the standard. The technology that has been developed for the digital era allows more flexibility for sound mixers than ever before. More on the modern sound jobs in a moment. 
She's got to talk into the mic. I can't pick it up. Cut! What's the matter, Dexter? It's Lena. Look, Lena. Don't you remember I told you? There's a microphone right there. In the bush. Yeah. You have to talk into it. I was talking, wasn't I, Miss Dinsmore? Yes, my dear, but please remember round tones. Pierre, you shouldn't have come. Pierre, you shouldn't have come. Yes, yes, my dear, that's much better now. Hold it a second. Now, Lena, look. Here's the mic. Right here in the bush. Yeah. Now you talk towards it. The sound goes through the cable to the box. A man records it on a big record in wax. But you have to talk into the mic first. In the bush. I'll try it again. Today, the sound recordist, or sound mixer as they are called today, is typically hired during pre-production. They are a department head and responsible for hiring any additional members, like a boom operator and utility person, if the budget allows for such positions. The boom operator, you guessed it, operates the boom, which is the microphone on the stick, while utility is in charge of wrangling cable and assisting the other two positions. Many times, though, especially on indie films or small shoots, the sound mixer is a one-man band responsible for all three of these duties. Most often, the sound mixer will be working with their own equipment for the length of the shoot. This means that they will be the ones choosing the microphones and equipment used to record audio. A sound mixer will record audio as needed during filming, mostly dialogue, but other sounds as well, as the director requires, in addition to something called room tone, something that is later spread beneath dialogue track in post-production to help recordings from different takes seem consistent and smooth when editing. Additionally, the mixer will keep a log of the audio tracks they are recording for use by the editor in post. This, with the slate or the clapper, will allow the editor to sync up footage and sound with minimal fuss. It also provides a log of when there may have been audio issues on the day, so the editor is aware when making initial shot selections. I added this next section in for any of you cool internet kids that might be listening. Because you clearly haven't learned how microphones work, it's driving all of us that have worked professionally with sound in some capacity crazy. Different microphones serve different purposes and can be used at varying lengths from your mouth. I'm looking at you, 22-year-old influencer, holding a lavalier microphone to their mouth a microphone typically meant to be worn more like a lapel pin, like you're auditioning for teeny tiny American Idol. When choosing microphones, one thing to consider is a microphone's polar patterns, which are cardioid, omnidirectional, figure eight, and shotgun. Polar patterns show how a microphone picks up sound, showing specifically where microphones are listening spatially and which positions are not. Having a good grasp of these polar patterns helps the mixer select the right microphones to capture the sound required of any particular scene or setup. Certain microphones are used for different things. For example, dynamic microphones. They're not super sensitive and therefore won't typically pick up anything too far away from them. They work more like a spotlight for your voice. Whatever the mic is pointed at is what it's going to pick up most. Next are condenser mics, which are great for voiceovers or podcasts. They're typically more sensitive than dynamic microphones, but are also available in different polar patterns, unlike the dynamic microphone. 
Then there's the lavalier, which is a small condenser microphone that is typically attached to talent hidden within their costumes. This allows actors to perform without having to worry about being in proximity of a shotgun microphone. While these have their own issues, they are particularly good for short films and interviews. Shotgun mics are what you typically think of when you think of a sound man on set, as it's usually the one attached to the boom pole. Shotgun mics are typically condenser microphones with a variety of pickup patterns. Their flexibility as far as where they can be mounted and placed makes them the versatile option. All sound you will eventually hear on a finished film has been altered and mixed in some way. Frankly, this is true for most edited media, including this podcast. While my voice right now isn't auto-tuned or anything in any way, there are three different filters put on the raw audio tracks before I even start editing out the ums, ahs, and stutters. The filters I use drown out street noise and other living in an apartment noises as I don't record in a professional studio, and I also use one to enhance the more feminine tones in my voice as I naturally have a slightly deeper, more nasal one than the one you hear each week. So much so that I have had a couple of friends and my own mother asking who I got to record this podcast. The same thing is done for film, but on a much grander scale. Once filming is completed, the film goes to the edit process, which we discussed last week. When that edit is locked, the sound mixing can begin. As always, the size of this team depends on the size of the budget and the needs of the film. On an indie film, it's likely one or a few people on the staff, but on a big budget film, the post-sound mixer will oversee a group of Foley artists, audio engineers, ADR teams, music editors, sound effects engineers, whatever the film needs and the budget allows. So what do these jobs entail? A post sound mixer is going to do all the things we're going to mention, save composing, and a lot more. If it's a big production with multiple people in the department, the sound designer is the department head overseeing everybody else. They will typically be brought on during post-production and collaborate with the director to develop a soundscape in keeping with their vision. A soundscape is a bed of audio that music, sound effects, and dialogue ultimately rest on top of. Creative soundscapes are a great way to enhance a film's sense of atmosphere or style. Nowadays, there are vast sound effects libraries to get all manner of pre-recorded sounds that mixers can tap into, though sometimes they may have to create sounds that don't exist in the real world. Say you know long extinct animals. This is where a sound designer comes in. They make sounds of things that don't exist. When it comes to creating the roar of a T-Rex in Jurassic Park, for example, the designer that worked on that film came up with a mixture of a baby elephant's squeal, an alligator's gurgling, and a tiger's snarl to get that T-Rex roar. Its breathing, fun fact, was the sound of a whale's blowhole. If a sound is not available in a library and can't be created digitally, then the job to get that sound falls to a Foley artist. A Foley artist will recreate sounds to replace the ones made during filming. If done well, you'll never know the sound of someone getting punched in the face or the clickety-clack of stilettos down a hallway were recorded months after the image you're seeing was shot. In the show notes, I've included a video of all the crazy stuff Foley artists do to recreate sounds, and I highly recommend you check that out because it's wild. While you watch, remember that that's someone's full-time job they probably went to college for. Similar-ish to Foley is ADR, Automated Dialogue Replacement. This is used if a line of dialogue from the failed recording was polluted in some way, or if a line needs to be added later to perhaps clarify something in the plot. 
ADR is its own beast for actors as it requires them to match not only their lips, but their performances as well. Then there's music. If licensing a popular song or songs, you'll want a clearance person who works with the necessary entities to work out usage deals for the song as well as the contracts. If recording a fully original score, a composer would have been chosen by the director to provide this. The composer typically enters production during the edit phase, usually around the rough cut. Upon viewing this cut, the composer will work with the director to create the music needed for the film. The composer will then take precise notes as to which moments will have music so as to write something within the exact required length given by the director. Sometimes there is wiggle room for this, and the composer and director will work together to enhance emotional arcs and what have you with the music. The music, once written and orchestrated, will be recorded with the composer conducting. With all of these elements compiled, it falls in the post-sound mix to combine all of these elements to create the soundscape. If done well, all of these elements will blend together seamlessly, not only with each other, but with the images as well. If it doesn't, well, you've likely seen a Christopher Nolan movie in the last 10 years to know what that sounds like. Now that you have an idea of the jobs, what is the education and career pathway? That after a short break. Sound, like editing, requires some form of education. Like all the jobs we've discovered this month, you can usually get that education at film school. My film school even had an emphasis for sound. In film school, you'll learn the basics of everything mentioned today, except composing, as that's its own field within music, obviously, and get the hands-on experience needed to go out in the real world and attempt to find employment. Training sound mixers in film school will work with different types of mixers, starting at least at my school, and this was almost 10 years ago, mind you, with what's called a Marantz, which is a two-channel mixer that looks like a giant tape deck, and work your way up to multi-channel mixers. Due to its niche skill set, even today, sound mixing is actually one of the few jobs you can leave college with a degree in and get paying work for that job. It ain't gonna be features. But a lot of other film schools I've seen from personal experience don't teach sound in any meaningful way, and therefore their student productions are often forced to hire a sound person. Pay is not going to be great because students, but it is going to build your reel and pay some bills. Before long, if you're any good and you network your little tush off, you'll likely start getting bigger jobs. For post-sound mixers, like editors, this also typically requires some kind of training. Students often remix famous scenes from movies using software like Pro Tools or Adobe Audition, which is what I use to record this podcast, to learn the basics of the programs. They will also become familiar with sound banks, music libraries, plugins, and anything else that might help them seamlessly mix all the elements together. Composing, like screenwriting, has an element of raw talent in addition to the training. Many go the school route here as well. At my alma mater, our music department worked in tandem with the film department to hook up budding composers with directors for our final thesis films. This allowed two things to happen. Composers get real-world experience working with directors and writing music for film, and also get to collaborate with a director, skills that will be vital for both going forward. As with anything in life, networking is a crucial step in achieving anything we've mentioned this month. Without networking, your film career isn't likely to last long. 
Whatever your big film dreams may be, if any, everything is going to hinge on the work you're willing to put into it. Nothing is just going to happen overnight. Get educated, start practicing, start developing your craft because there are thousands of people that will be competing against you for a job and you want to make sure you're the shiniest resume on the pile. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory. And if you have any questions, you can email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making this podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. Think of it as my virtual starving artist tip jar. This will allow me to keep making episodes as well as being able to acquire better equipment down the line. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out in the show notes. Next week, we're going back to history as we kick off Love Month with a series I'm calling Love is Dead, which will cover famous Hollywood relationships, both old and new. Next week, we're going over the life and loves of Violet Eyes' Elizabeth Taylor. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.